3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Uh, welcome, Priya. How are you going this morning? The 14th of March, uh, May. Oh, my gosh. I wish, wish it was March. <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems like this year has accelerated. March lasted forever. April was like a week, and now we're in May. Oh, I do not like it. I do not like it. It's getting cold. Um, so everyone knows this is my least favorite season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I finally acquired a heater, which I, you know, look forward to using, but hopefully we won't be working from home for too, too much longer. Yeah, absolutely. I think I definitely need to go out in public again because I really need a haircut. So mm. I need that accountability. Um, and <laughs> on the note of accountability, um, we're up to episode seven of Liberation Loops. So today you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Anna Carlson. Um, and Anna is currently doing her PhD and her research examines the relationship between surveillance and colonial governments in so-called Brisbane, um, and it focuses on how surveillance functions to produce and maintain settler colonial regimes of possession, ownership and belonging. So, yeah, Anna and I have a pretty in-depth conversation about um, how surveillance operates on this continent, as well as what's happening amidst COVID-19. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I can't wait to hear it. Um, after that, we listened to an interview uh, that Max did with Sam Elkin about Change Your ID Day. So Victoria's only free legal service for the LGBTIQ community is going to host the first ever virtual Change Your ID Day this m- coming Monday, the 18th of May. So Sam speaks with Max about the upcoming live online session, which is going to provide practical information on how trans and gender diverse people can change their name and preferred sex descriptors on legal identification documents. Um, and there'll be a link in that. Uh, sorry, a link to that in the show notes. Then we'll hear a number of poems by Nika Lehman, a writer and artist living and working on cool and country. And that's going to follow up from Cook 250, which we listened to last week. Um, Afterwards, we're going to hear a conversation between Shahrazad and Dr. Shakir Hussain, who's a writer and academic in multiculturalism and Muslim studies at the National Center for Excellence in Islamic Studies at the University of Melbourne. So last week, Shakira and Shahrazad spoke about the intersection of race, Islamophobia and COVID-19. And this week, she's going to be talking about the dynamics of race, class and the far right within the settler colony. And then lastly, Priya speaks with Raj Patel a former university cleaner, stood down during COVID-19 and member of the United Workers' Union about the Australian University Support Your Cleaners petition. Um, this interview follows on from Priya's chat a, f- a few weeks ago with Nick Ferguson about the same petition. Awesome show. Yeah, sounds packed this week. Um, yeah. Not that it isn't always packed. Um, 
Awesome. All right. And now to the news with Kate Kelly. Activists protesting at the detention of asylum seekers in a Melbourne hotel on Tuesday barricaded themselves in a room for about seven hours. They were then escorted from the building and fined more than 1,500 each. Healthcare workers have previously described the makeshift detention centre housing more than 60 men who were medically evacuated from Manus Island, Nauru, as very high-risk environment for transmitting the coronavirus. Eight activists checked in into the room into the three rooms at Preston's Mantra Hotel on Monday and barricaded themselves on onto at least one of the rooms. By mid-afternoon, they were escorted out of the building by police and fined $1,652 for breaching social distancing rules. They are expected to be charged on summons with trespassing at the property, police said. While the protest was taking place, a Tamil detainee self-harmed and was taken to the Royal Melbourne Hospital at 2.45pm. To Richmond, where Reason Party leader Fiona Patton has called for the safe injecting room to prescribe a pharmaceutical opiate to drug users to reduce the illicit heroin trade in North Richmond. Ms Patton wants the state government to extend the two-year trial of the medically supervised injecting room in its current location. However, she says it should be able to supply users with hydromorphone, an opiate used to treat pain, to break the nexus between criminal activity and drug addiction. Ms. Patton call, Ms. Patton's call comes just days before the state government receives an independent review of the trial of the medically supervised injection room, which ends on June 29th. And a new report has found that the coal industry in New South Wales and Queensland is using as much water as all of Sydney's households. The new report from the University of Adelaide Water Resources and commissioned by the Australian Conservation Foundation used public data to examine the impact of coal mining and coal-fired power on water resources. The report found that the amount of water consumed by coal mining and coal-fired power in New South Wales and Queensland is about 383 billion litres a year, roughly equivalent to the household water needs of 5.2 million people. The report finds the amount of fresh water withdrawn from the water resources for the coal industry each year in those states is 2,383 billion litres. And about 1,970 billion litres of that water is released back into the environment. But the report notes that often it is it has been polluted or processed in such a way that is harmful to fish, plants and other species. The research says the amount of water used by the coal-fired power is 120 times the amount of water used by wind or solar, which will probably unsurprise a lot of our audience. That's it for Thursday's headlines. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, 
a series that has been created from both my bedroom and from the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system. And through this series, I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. Today, you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Anna Carlson. Anna is a co-founder and organiser of the Brisbane Free University, co-host of 4ZZZ's Radio Reversal and a freelance radio producer, illustrator, writer and community organiser. She is midway through her PhD, supervised by Dr Alyssa McCoon, Associate Professor Chelsea Bond, Dr Liz Strakosh and Dr David Singh. Her research examines the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance in so-called Brisbane, focusing on how surveillance functions to produce and maintain settler colonial regimes of possession, ownership and belonging. Welcome, Anna. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honour. So you're currently um, doing your PhD and it explores the relationship between colonial governance and surveillance. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this work that you're doing um, and what has drawn you to doing this work? Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD kind of, as you said, it kind of looks at the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance and particularly focusing on how surveillance functions to produce and reproduce settler colonial regimes of possession, of ownership and belonging. And I do this through a kind of deep investigation of surveillance in my home city of, of so-called Brisbane on Yagara country in, in Queensland. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in surveillance because for me it represents this really interesting intersection between a bunch of political and legal processes that I have been thinking and, and writing and talking about for a few years. So it kind of brings together these legal regimes of policing and incarceration along with normative ideas about belonging, about safety, threat, who is understood as a risk, who is understood as, um, as belonging. And then couples these with these kind of ideas about efficiency, about neutrality, about scientific progress and objectivity. Um, so for me, as, as a white settler who has lived on Yagara country for, for quite a while now, thinking about surveillance has also been, like in, in some ways, about thinking seriously about colonial complicity, about the ways that um, folks like me, particularly white women, are enlisted through surveillance in the maintenance of colonial regimes. And so, yeah, I think my, my work kind of sits in that, in that intersection between thinking about the intensification of the carceral state, thinking about dynamics like gentrification and um, kind of settler nation-building projects, um, and thinking about how all of these wrap around these kind of rich political ideas of, of safety, of belonging, um, and of, uh, of possession. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. So now we're up to episode seven of Liberation Loops. And I think that we only really spoke about surveillance in the first episode when I was having a conversation with Bridget Chappelle. And they talked about the um, uh, terror alert speakers that the uh, Victorian government put in place a few years ago, and that was coupled with CCTV that was rolled out across Melbourne CBD. And then they also spoke about drones um, and how 
how technology progresses much faster than uh, legislators can keep up with. Um, and so I'm glad that we're having this conversation um, now about surveillance. But what do you understand surveillance to mean? Um, and how does surveillance intersect with policing and prisons? Yeah, so on the, the first part of that, and I think those examples from Bridget are, are really rich um, rich ideas to think through. So on the, the first part of the question, so how do I understand surveillance? The definition that I draw most often in my research comes from a guy called David Lyon, um, who's like a fairly prominent surveillance theorist. But I actually came across his work through one of the first surveillance scholars I read, um, a black feminist theorist who you and I have talked about before, Carly, called Simone Brown, whose book... Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness is kind of the text that kicked off my my interest in or thinking about surveillance. So David Lyons, Mo Brown and a bunch of other people, they draw on this idea that surveillance has two elements, that it requires the gathering of data or information about a person or a population and the use of that data as a means of controlling or regulating that person or population. So obviously that's a super broad definition, but... For me, I think that that bread is really useful because one of the really important things that I've I've kind of noticed as I've done this research on surveillance here in so-called Brisbane is that rather than being about individual technologies or techniques or um, specific projects, surveillance is fundamentally about a power relationship. So nearly any act of, of seeing, gathering information, taking photographs, fingerprinting, tracking movement, drawing a map, whatever it is, right, can be an act of surveillance if the power relation between the seer and the scene is such that the information produced can be used to control or govern or regulate them. At the same time, outside of that power relation, those things aren't necessarily acts of surveillance, right? So for me, it's not so much about the, the act or the technology, but the function that it serves. And so I think that kind of links into the question of how surveillance intersects with policing and prisons, because for me, the answer is these are inextricable techniques of governance. Um, I don't know how, how deep we, we can really go here, but one of the, the folks who's kind of really associated with thinking through surveillance is the French critical theorist Michel Foucault, whose book Discipline and Punish is uh, this kind of deep investigation of the relationship between um, between forms of, of policing, imprisonment and surveillance and broader technologies of governance. Um, but one of the, like, the kind of key things that I think comes out of Foucault's work is, is the idea that, uh, that surveillance is inextricably connected to broader projects of policing and imprisonment. Um, and in some ways he talks about surveillance as the kind of, um, it's almost like the kind of perfection of policing and, and imprisonment. Uh, where the, the prison walls become um, transparent, but the, the project, the logics of imprisonment remain the same. Um, but I think for, for me, I guess, um, I guess the, the it, thinking about the relationship between policing, prisons and surveillance in a settler colonial context, there's a couple of probably useful distinctions. Um, one is that, like, from that definition of, of surveillance as the gathering of data about a person or a population in order to control or regulate them, I think we can kind of see that surveillance functions at, like, multiple scales at once, depending on which person or population is being surveilled. So, as I said at the beginning, in my research, I'm primarily interested in surveillance that functions at the scale of the settler state, right, that functions as um, a means of producing and reproducing this population that is 
um, the settler colonial state. But in the case of policing and prisons, it's also worth recognising that surveillance also functions in way more targeted ways, right? Like it, it functions as a way of gathering data about a specific person so that you can do specific things to that person. So you can charge them with a crime, you can detect wrongdoing or whatever. Um, and so I think that one of the one of the things that is, yeah, or maybe a good example of, um, of the kind of intersection between these, like, big-scale projects of surveillance that are used to discipline a population and these kind of targeted projects of surveillance that are used by the police are things like the New South Wales Police Suspect Target Management Plan, which is now in its second iteration. So this is this, like, I don't know whether your listeners will know much about this, but it's this incredible kind of minority report-esque policing project that uses, um, uses data, uses algorithms, to identify young people who are understood to be at a high risk of committing crime and then targets those young people for intensified police surveillance. So things like they can be stopped at any point um, to be... They are always understood as suspicious, basically. So they can be stopped at any time to be questioned, to be searched. Um, their their houses can be searched, etc. So this this... Yeah, it's terrifying, right? And this, the suspect target management plan, I think, kind of brings together multiple scales of surveillance because within it, we can see from the data that's been gathered about it already that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and young people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are disproportionately overrepresented as the sus, as suspect, right? As people who are read uh, by the police as likely future offenders. And so I think within those kind of examples, we see, like, both of those scales of surveillance um, coming together into a single um, policy platform that is still underway, that the New South Wales Police still use. Mm. Yeah, um, and I think that that people use people's previous kind of, like, track records or um, histories as then foreseeing the future, um, and that's kind of what police do when they do those stop and searches and they, mm-hmm. yeah, um, pull up, you know, marginalised people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on the street to see if they do have those previous, um, you know, criminal history track records. Um, and I do see, yeah, like the police and also the corrections prison officers um, being the foot soldiers and using technology in these ways to surveil people. Um like, I think that, that that really speaks to the element of surveillance that is um, really dystopian because it's often framed as preventative. And so we see this both with, with um, stuff like CCTV, like your conversation with Bridget was speaking about. Um, CCTV cameras are often um, justified by the folks who want to implement or want to add more of them as being technologies that will help uh, the police to intervene before crimes occur. So that's fascinating, right? Like, what the hell are the police intervening in if no crime has yet occurred? Basically, it means that there is a kind of established idea of what constitutes risk, who is read as suspect, who seems like they don't belong in a space, and the police are called on to um, remove those people before they become the threat that they are read as, as already, as always already being. Um, and so I think that that element of prevention means that we have to talk about norms, we have to talk about who is constructed as being threatening or dangerous or uh, a threat to public safety. 
Um, and all of those things mean we have to think about power relations. And now turning to the present, um, Arundhati Roy in a recent online teaching said that if we were walking into a surveillance state, now we are panic running into it. Um, what are the extra surveillance tools that the state is using in so-called Australia to address the pandemic? Um, and what are your main concerns with the surveillance technology that is currently being employed? Yeah, so I mean, this is such a um, this is such a like interesting and horrifying moment. My my very good friend Bryony Walker has a great line about things that are terrible for the world but great for our PhDs, and I feel like this moment has definitely been been one of those for me because the responses to COVID nineteen have been um, have been heavily reliant on accelerated forms of surveillance. Um, one thing that I think is probably worth noting is that um, one of the tools that I think we get from, like, you know, critical prison abolition theory is moving away from ideas of good and bad. And I think that's quite useful in thinking about surveillance too because actually surveillance is infrastructural to um, to policy making. So this idea of evidence-based policy is basically a form of surveillance. Um, so... I think that's kind of worth noting because particularly in conversations about COVID-19, I think we get stuck in this space where people are endlessly saying, yep, but we have to do this because people are vulnerable to COVID-19 and so we need to address, um, you know, we need these surveillance measures because otherwise people will get sick. Um, And so I think we get stuck in these kind of moralistic conversations about whether the surveillance measures are justified rather than the conversation that I'm much more interested in, which is what is going to happen when the pandemic ends. So anyway, that's jumping forward a little bit. But basically, um, COVID-19 has provoked like a pretty intense acceleration in surveillance, but really just more of the same, right? So we've seen added police presence, the redeployment of folks who were ticket inspectors on public transport to act as um, kind of essentially as police officers with some limited powers, um, but to police particularly breaches of the COVID-19 health regulations, um, as well as seeing like an accelerated graduation of folks from the police academy, so basically a, a more intensified police presence. At the same time, we've also seen a, a, this, this kind of additional COVID-19 hotline where community members are encouraged to call in to report their neighbours or members of the public who they perceive to have been breaching COVID-19 um, hot regulations. Um, there's also added scrutiny in the health system itself. So folks who are um, presenting at hospitals are asked extra questions. There are these added layers of um, data being gathered about people's movement, etc. Um, added surveillance measures like biometric measures, so temperature testing, all of that kind of stuff at, at airports, um, as well as in, in hospitals. Um, but perhaps the most prominent and, and certainly the most um, resonant new surveillance technology at the moment is the COVID Safe app, which has been rolled out in the last couple of weeks. Um, and which basically seeks to digitise the process of contact tracing, which um, which the the government and most governments have been using, have been doing manually up until this point. So people who uh, contract COVID-19 or test positive for COVID-19 uh, are asked then to provide a list of people that they've spent more than um, 15 minutes with in the last two weeks, uh, and then that those that list of people is followed up. The government are seeking to automate that process by rolling out the COVID Safe app, which digitally tracks um, 
through what I'm not a um, I'm not a technologist, nor do I really understand how how the app works. But most of the the accounts so far are that it's super clunky. It's a really clunky mechanism to do this um, this contact tracing. You have to have the app um, like switched on in your phone. It can't work in the back background. Uh, and there are a bunch of other like you know actual technological concerns about how it works. Um, but that's kind of the, the main conversation about surveillance now is a conversation about the COVID safe app. I think the part of your question was my concerns about it, right? So I think, I guess I have kind of two answers to that. The first is really material, which is that, um, the accelerated, um, the, the kind of surveillance by police has already, um, led to, I think in Queensland, about 1600 Breach notices have been um, have been issued. Um, early data gathered by Osman Faruqi for the Saturday paper in relation to New South Wales has suggested that the that a, a disproportionate number of breach notices have been issued in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or areas with a high Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, a high population of folks of colour. Um, so we're kind of already seeing how these surveillance measures are accelerating existing political dynamics here that have really violent and disastrous consequences. In terms of the the app, um, and I, I guess my deeper concerns are that um, these ideas of, of crisis and emergency have re- have a really long history in being used to justify and usher in new technologies. So. The most recent and I think probably useful example is that the Northern Territory intervention into Aboriginal communities, which is widely understood as an an incredibly violent intervention, um, was justified on the grounds of a public health and um, policing crisis, right? It was represented as a crisis um, that justified this kind of um, massive emergency, this swathe of emergency measures that was introduced under the... um, other than under the Northern Territory Emergency Response Legislation, um, you know, in, introduced late at night uh, with very little scrutiny and that has had really well recognised now disastrous consequences on the ground. And so I think that the idea that, that this is a kind of new or unprecedented moment where we're seeing these ideas of, of crisis and emergency used to justify technologies that we might otherwise have been like, oh, I don't know, that doesn't seem necessary, that seems a bit, it seems like maybe we don't really want the state to be tracking our movement in that way, um, is really troubling for me. It reflects a much deeper dynamic and one that I think we have to be really cautious of. Yeah, I think, yeah, your thoughts about, you know, the military kind of response um, yeah, in the Northern Territory intervention has, yeah, like also like materially kind of um, evolved here as well. So down here in Nam, um, you know, a few weeks ago, there were police helicopters flying above my house. These are really, um, I think that there's a real under, like, I guess particularly mainstream reporting, I think there's been a real underestimation of the violence of these responses, right? Like they are... Um, the fact that they are wildly uneven, you know, that you have these kind of tight regulations on some things and then really loose regulations on other things. So for those of us living in Queensland, for example, uh, we're seeing the relaxing of some of the quarantine rules now. And so retail shopping is like the first thing that opens up. 
and I think there are these these moments where you can kind of see the sets of values that underpin um, decision making. Uh, but you can also see what is consistently left out and overlooked in these processes. And so I think not only does COVID-19 have, as, as an illness, have a disproportionate impact on folks who have, um, who have experiences of, uh, intergenerational, um, the kind of intergenerational violence of, um, of a healthcare system that continues to be institutionally racist. You also have response measures that once again disproportionately target marginalised communities. And so the, the dynamic for me that's interesting is like that stuff is all happening at the same time as you have these political justifications that are talking about these emergency measures as, um, as necessary, as important, as like these kind of virtuous projects for the common good. Um, you have folks like invoking this idea that you have to do your bit for Team Australia and that downloading the app will, will in, in Scott Morrison's words, will let us get back to the pub quicker. Mm. So, you know, you have these, these ideas of, of settler nationalism, these kind of deeply, um, deeply rooted ideas about what it means to be an Australian being invoked here as a way to, to kind of invisibilise and obscure the violence that these responses are really doing. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like herd immunity via technology is kind of um, what's being pushed um, as being, yeah, like the solution to keeping us safe during this pandemic. Totally, right? And, I mean, with with the same, um, with the same, like, sets of violence that are associated with ideas of herd immunity in general, but with the additional, like, dynamic that most folks who engage with the actual uh, questions of the, the technology are, like, one of the biggest threats here is that people are treating downloading the app as though it keeps them safe from COVID-19. Like, it, it does absolutely nothing to keep you safe from COVID-19. All it does is automate the process of contact tracing, sort of, you know? It's like this is not a panacea, but this this kind of rhetorical justification of the app as something that will, yeah, get us back to the pub faster mm-hmm. is um, is doing all of this work to make it seem like all we have to do, all we have to do is download this app and then this will all be over. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. And, I mean, you were saying this um, earlier on in our conversation as well, where, you know, this kind of legislation is always brought in in moments of crisis and I think also particularly in the name of health and safety. So last year we saw the Australian government introduce My Health Records, um, which is an online database cataloguing people's medical histories. And, I mean, people in the community had to be socially and politically engaged to know that they had the option to actually opt out of that scheme. Um, and police under the My Health Records Act can access people's medical information that is recorded on My Health Records. So how often do we see surveillance used in the name of health and safety? Yeah, I think, like, all the time, right? And certainly the... Um the research that I've done tracks the relationship between surveillance and colonial governance in Brisbane historically. So the first chapter of my research looks at surveillance under the so-called Protection Act in, in Queensland. Um, and so it kind of, so turn of the 20th century, like late 1800s, early 1900s. And one of the things that is really striking is that, um, is that surveillance is A, represented as a, a project of reforming 
uh, the violence that came before it. So this is represented as a kind of progressive move forward into a future free from um, the violence of the frontier. But also that it's represented as um, as a way to care for a vulnerable population. In this case, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are um, in at this period of time um, contained under the, the Protection Act. This in, intensely violent set of regulations that governed almost every aspect of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander life at the time, or attempted to. Of course, they didn't. Of course, people always have. Um, autonomous lives and resist in various ways. But that was the goal of the Act, was to heavily surveil and regulate people's lives. And so even then, right, you have these discourses of um, of health, of ill health, being um, operationalised to justify this intensive state, state control um, based on the surveillance of Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so... And I think that, that that carries all the way through. Um, these ideas of, I think part of the reason that COVID-19 has been so so striking is because you've seen this idea of public health coupled with these, these kind of um, really like politically laden ideas of the common good, of civic responsibility, you know, doing your bit for the community. Um, and this has been really powerful, I think, in motivating a lot of people who might otherwise have been quite sceptical of these kind of state apparatus to um, acquiesce to being made complicit in um, something like the COVID safe app. Mm. And I think this is this is really dangerous because I think what it speaks to is how and I think your your comment about how the My Health record required that people be really meaningfully politically engaged in order to opt out. I think that the the idea that um, that people often often use, like, oh but COVID safe is voluntary, like no one has to uh, no one has to sign up. And that's absolutely true. But when you have government discourses saying this is a moment for Team Australia, you know, this is a moment to do your bit for the community, the morally righteous thing to do is to download the app, um, then you have that coupled with uh, retail institutions saying that they are not going to allow people who haven't downloaded the app to enter their stores, right? You have the, the increased threat that it will be used as a condition of entry to particular spaces. Well, then people aren't really, uh, it's not really a voluntary decision, right? It's coercive as hell. Thinking too about um, how the government is kind of like pushing this on people as being, this is, you know, good. Like what you were talking about before, that discourse that abolitionists push against, where there's a division between good and bad. Um, And really the government's saying, if you download this app, then you're a good person. And then if when people are, you know, it would be interesting to see who's actually taking up this app because I imagine the people that are taking it up aren't thinking that there's going to be negative consequences for them, um, that they're going to be, you know, surveilled and criminalised um, for, you know, taking up this app and then potentially, you know, spreading this virus. And I guess, like, you know, those people aren't thinking about, you know, pushing back against um, all of the technology used by police to, I guess, what we talked about before, stop and search people yeah and this is why i think that like for me the idea of thinking about complicity has been so useful because one of the things that i've seen people um people's responses to covid safe and the question of whether they should download it one of the particularly on social media where i've been having these conversations a little bit um one of the really common um pieces of or one of the really common responses that i've seen 
um, is enclosure of a conversation about COVID safe, a conversation about privacy, which I think you alluded to a bit earlier, where the conversation becomes a contest between individual privacy rights and some kind of amorphous concept of the common good. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is all of the things, or certainly what my, my research has been interrogating, is all of the political relationships that are obscured when we let conversations about surveillance be conversations about privacy. Um, because A, privacy is already in and of itself a political construct, but also one of the only ways that surveillance can function is through the production of a norm. So when you have a group of people saying, but actually I'm not personally worried about my data being used, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't have anything to fear from being surveilled, um, choosing to take up these technologies, what you're also seeing them do is produce a baseline against which people's refusal to take up the app will be measured, which means once again you're seeing folks who are insulated, largely folks who are insulated from state violence, being incorporated into the maintenance of a regime that disproportionately impacts folks who are sceptical of the state, right, or sceptical of the state's motivations, um, or in some way maybe don't believe that this technology won't be um, continued or accelerated now that it's been implemented and normalised under this kind of so-called emergency. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today on Liberation Loops. Oh, this has been such a pleasure. I'm so good I just rambled at you for, um, for 40 minutes about all of my thoughts. <laughs> And just then, that was a conversation that you heard between Anna Carlson and myself about how surveillance operates in the settler colony, as well as all of the ways that surveillance is being used amidst COVID-19. And join us back here next week um, to hear a conversation that I have with Simon Clough from Brook Red about community responses to mental health. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and that was a new track there by Sophie Grophy. Boy. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast 855 AM and we're joined on the show again by Sam Elkin to talk with us about Change Your ID Day which is happening next Monday. Thanks for joining us on the show again, Sam. Thank you, Max. Good to be here. Well, just to jump right in, what is Change Your ID Day? Yeah, so we ran our first ever Change Your ID Day event last year, um, back in the heady days of 2019, and we had that as a kind of in-real-life one-stop shop where people could interact with births, deaths and marriages, and certainly Medicare, Vic Roads and all that, and actually change their IDs on the spot. Um, we were going to do the same thing this year, but obviously due to COVID, we've had to mix it up a bit. So we're having a kind of virtual um, info share session with um, our organisation, the LGBTIQ Legal Service, along with Births, Deaths and Marriages, Transgender Victoria and Rainbow Families Victoria. So people will be able to find out um, how the laws have changed in Victoria in relation to changing gender markers and how it, um, you know, people can ask questions about how to do it themselves and, you know, any questions they have about their own particular situation, um, reps from birth, death, marriages will be there and they can ask. So how have the laws changed since May 1st this year? Yeah, so I guess the big change is that you no longer need to have had surgery to your reproductive organs in order to change your gender marker on your birth certificate where you were born in Victoria. And for people that were born overseas, like myself, um, you can get a recognised details certificate, which unfortunately doesn't really have any legal standing, but is a kind of nice touch, I suppose, um, and a way of the state sort of validating your um, gender identity without requiring, um, you know, reproductive surgery. So that's a big change. Um, And also probably the other really big change is that people will be able to choose um, gender markers that are neither male nor female. So you'll be able to choose male or female, but you can also choose things like non-binary or genderqueer or come up with your own, um, you know, idea on how you want to express your gender on that document. Um, they do have a right to reject it if they deem it offensive, but there's like lots and lots of different ones that they've kind of approved. So yeah, you can be quite creative about that. So that's, you know, really, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why are those changes so important for the trans and gender diverse community? Um, well, you know, we have a history of being, um, over-medicalised and subject to medical gatekeeping. So, um, you know, we weren't able to change our... Um, sorry, we weren't able to access gender-affirming care at all unless we got certain medical sign-off. And then um, if you can't get a certain medical sign-off, then the thought of actually being able to, you know, undergo these really expensive and difficult and at times risky surgeries is, like, completely out of the question. So... Um, taking that kind of medical aspect away to how the state recognises people's identity is really important because, A, not everybody wants to have those surgeries, B, not everybody can afford those surgeries, and um, C, it's just not really relevant. Like, it's just people should be able to have the identification in the gender to which they identify, and that's really the end of the story. It's just going to make it so much easier for people in their employment, uh, getting a working with children check, interacting with unis, schools, things like that. So, yeah, it's hugely important and very, very excited. Absolutely. And you mentioned the heady days of 2019. So I just wanted to ask, how did, how did the first Change Your ID Day last year go? What was some of the feedback? Yeah, it was really good. We got really good feedback 
from it. I was quite terrified because we'd never done anything like this before and we weren't really sure how it was going to go. Um, but the services were all really good. They were very respectful and I think they were, you know, genuinely really excited to be there and to service a kind of under-resourced community. Um, and it was kind of, like, I'd imagine in my head it was just going to be this kind of useful event that people could come to for, like, an hour and just kind of usefully interact with services. But it really was just as much of a celebration. And I think that people coming together and seeing that there are a whole bunch of other people around that have the same problems that they've had is really empowering, you know, because, like, so much of this kind of quasi-legal process, like identity documents, is obviously really individualised process. So, yeah, kind of collectivising it and coming together and being like, wow, we can do things our way. We can get services to come to us. We can come together and fix things together, you know, um, I think was a really exciting kind of outcome of it that I hadn't necessarily intended it to be that sort of event, but it just was. And so that was cool. Tell me a bit more about how you're feeling about the shift to the online platform this year. Do you envisage that there'll be any sort of, you know, differences or changes in, in what that will involve? Look, um, I don't know about you or your listeners, but I'm sort of like death by Zoom a bit at the moment. So, like, it has been quite full on just doing so many meetings online. Um, but I think that it actually has a lot of benefits and one of them is, of course, accessibility. Um, there's a lot of people that, you know, wouldn't have been able to travel to an event if we'd have held it in Carlton or whatever, um, you know, either because of through a lack of funds living regionally or may have significant social anxiety or mobility issues, which mean that they might not be able to travel. And I really am excited about how much more accessible the event is going to be. Um, we're going to be able to record it so that people will be able to listen to it if, you know, um, 1pm on a Monday is not their time of day or they're busy doing something else. So, yeah, I guess it's a bit of an experiment and I think with the amount of people that are going to be on there, it's going to be a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge working out how to get through everybody's questions. So depending on how many questions people have, we might need to, like, get the department to email people back individually. Not really sure yet. So, yeah, it is a bit of an experiment. Um, but... You know, I'm really excited to, like, look at all the kind of, like, faces of people waiting expectantly to hear about this really important legal change. So I think it'll be cool. Um, yeah, and hopefully later in the year we can maybe have some sort of celebration event where people can, like, bring along their change ID and we can, like, all celebrate together and share stories, like, face-to-face about what the whole thing is meant to them or something. So for listeners who are keen to to come along, you know, virtually come along on Monday, what can they expect? Uh, well, they can expect <laughs> they'll need to register on our Eventbrite um, and there's a link to it on Law Week as well and on our Facebook page. But basically, if you just sign up on the Eventbrite, we'll send you a link to the Zoom meeting um, to make sure that, you know, there's some sort of like privacy um, there. And you'll hear from... Um, Margot Fink, who is the Executive Director of Transgender Victoria, um, who's been very much involved in the legislative reform campaign. You'll hear from Felicity Marlowe, who's been very involved with Rainbow Families Victoria, and we'll speak about um, her perspective of helping um, her non-binary child um, change their ID. And, um, yeah, you'll hear from birth, deaths and marriages as well, who, to be honest, I think have been, like, really... um, 
you know, found this a really meaningful experience to go through working on this project and kind of to as much to the extent possible, like consulting and co-designing on the actual forms and, you know, the, the gender markers and things like that. So I think, you know, they'll be really excited to be part of it and it'll just be a great chance for people to ask questions of the department without waiting on the line for 45 minutes. They'll be right there and you can ask your question directly. And before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to chat about yet that you wanted to mention? Um, as always, if people have any legal issues that they want some help with, they can just jump onto our website, which is lgbtiqlegalservice.org.au, and we've got a contact us form there, and please do get in touch if you reside in Victoria and you need some help. And actually, before we wrap up, I just remembered one more question, because this is coinciding with Idaho, isn't it? It is. Yes, so I always get this acronym wrong, but I'll try. Um, International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Intersexism on Biphobia is in there, of course. Yeah, so it's a day to recognise um, the oppressions that we have experienced and continue to experience and to celebrate LGBTIQ communities and to, um, you know, uh, show show the world that we're here and queer and that we've got interesting stuff to say. So, um yeah, it is going to be, I mean, this event is celebrating everything. We're celebrating Law Week, we're celebrating Idaho, we're celebrating legislative reform, and we're celebrating the online format of Zoom. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Excellent. Just just all, all at once, why not? Yeah, that's right. Um, awesome. Can you just remind listeners one last time how they can um, find out about the Change Your ID Day and register? Yes, so probably the easiest way is to just jump onto the internet and Google Change Your ID Day 2020 Law Week and it'll pop up and um, just click through the links and you'll get to our Eventbrite and just register there. It's free. Um, We just need you to register so that we can email you the link to the Zoom. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sam, for joining us again on Thursday Breakfast. Thanks very much. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. Now we're going to hear a couple of poems by Nika Lehman, who's a writer and artist living and working on cool and country. Nika grew up in Tasmania, or Latruata, and descends from the Trawalway peoples of northeast Tasmania. Their ancestral and contemporary stories inform Nika's written and visual practice. Yatawacha, hello. My name is Nika Lehman. I'm a writer and artist living and working from the suburb of West Melbourne in Nam on Kulin Country. Today I'm going to be reading some poetry. I think the oldest poem that I'll read is maybe six years old and the newest I wrote just last week. So it's still a draft form, but I think it's important to share. Thanks 3CR for having me. The first poem is called For Katie West After Clearing. When you almost catch the frog, 
there is water underground. When that tree is whistling, you are feeling well because you listen. A dog eating grass might be doing better than you. Renovate that child living under your roof yourself and don't come back until Christmas, until whenever, until there is no measure for carrying water, for rocks, weighted and kelp bound. This poem is called Heartbreak Hotel. Yes, my heart is at the end of its reaches. My fingertips twining river reed strings into lengths, keeping you at bay. And I'm making this basket for you. Not for your memory, but really an object from me to you, or really to be in between us. It carries the buffer, the shared object, no longer my responsibility alone. The fights I've had with men over owning my image is no issue here with this tiny kelp basket. Please use this basket. Upcycle my good upside down cunt. Place food, memory. His string is from the river that helps soothe in this orange hidebound city. This poem is dedicated to Tanaminuait and Morbayana. Memorial. Remember two dead men. Suspend life to picture the dead. We never think to forget the dead. It is unnatural and suspicious to forget the dead. We are always the dead, living, forget of living. The dead are a form and meaning. We are precariously dead, on top and under the ground. Living the dead in love, I am in love with the dead, my ancestors dead in love, living my ancestors. This one is called Trangana Man. He was born smelling the rat, born slippy like a pup sliding forth from its fuck-eyed mother. He tasted sweet and was empty at the centre. Paper mache, lay a cake of things you can see, bull kelp, hyacinths, Hallis like clay. You find him down by the cove, sort impregnating beard so heavily he shook like the sun. Put your sunglasses on and you'd miss him. Born incredulous. Known erasures of people. History favours ghosts and so he preferred to be one, clapping his sticks to taunt. We would check the back of our yards, straining for twig snaps or fluid. Only came out when gusts swept her north. Touch him and he'd make you feel queasy. He was the past and we hated him. This next poem is called Portrait. When I was 24, I was cheating on my boyfriend and my mother had cancer. Now I'm 28. I sleep with women, read dirty poetry and laugh at jokes about theorists I don't understand. My country is dry, but when you think of my country, it is wet. I am decolonial, frantic, a blip in your ocean. These days I have more freckles than I do sins. I carry my ancestors' see-through jawbone on a string around my neck. I am beneath the she-oak of social media. I am always already falling for you. We have already broken up. 
that was the oldest poem that I'll be reading today, and this is the newest. It's called Cook 250. In all the ways, I still find fire in this city, touched down by skyboats spitting flares, greased historic reflections beyond the long and dirty grass. There is less time to silhouette in the old ways. A dense warm brick, a shaved down fig, melts liquid without restriction from the confines of the yard. Punish a laudable confusion. In balm and dissonance now, I want to remember the muddied hem, a transit trails behind. Eyes squint oriented towards smoke. This poem is called Poem About Work. A poem about institutions doesn't feel right. I thought poetry was escape, memories conjured on your own terms, but here I am writing about work. Maybe you've got to use your imagination to understand this place. When a memory becomes undesirable, the bearers are divided or expired. Institutional memories dissipate like faint rain, but today it's showering fossils dropped loose from a distracted hand. This history, a mess of waves, sandstone, lost income under a child's giant foot. This is the last poem I'll be reading. It's called For Katie West, After Body Remembering. A very wide circle is drawn. Much later, a line. The earth is warm from the sun. The smell of hot rock is the same, here or there, with or without the line. Inside the very wide bowl, that circle, they lean on the side of a clay slope to sit, to crack, to listen. The line is here and the line will move with or without you. Stay, crack, listen. Thanks very much. We just heard some poems recited and written by Nika Lehman, who is a writer and artist living and working on Cooling Country. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile? And adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. 
Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. Last time we spoke with Dr. Shakira Hussein about uh, Christchurch and COVID-19 and Islamophobia and sort of starting to link it with the racialized Australian context. Now we'll, we'll move the conversation more towards the far right uh, Nazi and neo-Nazi groups rather than sanitizing the idea of racist groups with broad terms such as the far right. So we talk a bit about that within the colonial Australian context. And we know since the start of COVID-19 and its uh, mediatisation, there's been uh, a, a rise in sort of new Facebook groups, but also in the popularity of these sort of far-right uh, Facebook groups. Uh, and also, if we sort of link to what's happening in the US, we know recently there's been a lot of sort of protests uh, in the midst of the pandemic, which has been very much organised by far-right groups. And also within those groups, we know that there's anti-vaxxers and a whole range of sort of like different far-right ideologies, I guess. 5G. <laughs> yeah, 5G, the anti-5G <laughs> stuff. Could you sort of speak, uh, speak a bit to that, uh, this sort of link between this, uh, this outright blatant racism that we've, we've seen? And we've known that this has existed because uh, especially um, for... Muslim women in particular who are quite who wear identifiable clothing have been at the forefront of sort of public spaces atta- attacks in the public space. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, this is a very long question. <laughs> Just uh, could you talk about what's happening and the link with the far right uh, and race? Times of uncertainty and times of fear are really tailor made for the far right. Tailor-made for ISIS too, by the way, which is another topic that's kind of fallen off the public agenda, but mm. you know, will return. Um, because it's understandable that people are questioning messages that are coming from media and that are coming from government. And to some extent, it's appropriate to be sceptical. These emergency measures, we need to be aware that they're not used to impose government control. I myself am probably not going to download the social contacting app, partly because I'm not going anywhere. But um, and historically, emergency measures that are that people accept because of a short-term crisis end up being long-term controls. But um, as but that's also provided a point of entry for a whole stack of far-right preoccupations to do with need for border control, not just border control because of a particular um, biological hazard, but border control because it's other people who carry disease and who are, you know, and and who are untrustworthy and who shouldn't be here in the first place. And again, the mainstreaming of... On the one hand, we call them like the far right, 
but the far right has become so much a part of the mainstream that I think we and the extreme has become so much of a um, mainstream that I think we need to find some different terminology. Again, it feels like a lifetime ago that when I saw it in my notes, I was like, oh God, yeah, that happened. That when there was all this talk by the far right, but also in mainstream media, including at The Age, including in a tweet by an ABC journalist about how the shortage of toilet paper was from busloads of shoppers. And, and the far right was saying this was busloads of Asian shoppers. Mm-hmm. You know, buying up all the Australian toilet paper to send back to China for reasons unknown, mm-hmm. and um, and in the age didn't say that they were Asian. They just the the age just said busloads, but busloads is a dog whistle. Busloads of who? Busloads from people. Busloads going to country towns as a thing. Busloads mm-hmm. of strangers. How did they know they were strangers? Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe because they had, you know, different facial features and somewhat darker skin tone. That would be how they knew. And but you. Know, but people who are attuned to right-wing discourses know who these busloads of people were. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and then Peter Dutton, unsurprisingly, played into that by saying that he was going to come down heavy. He was not going to t- put up with these busloads of shoppers who were scavenging local towns. Exactly what he was going to be doing. Was he going to be like arresting them, interning them, deporting them? What? This wasn't specified. And it was, you know, frankly terrifying. Mm. And so when we're talking about, so you just, you mentioned like the language that we're using. So these sort of code words, uh, so busloads, it sort of implies, like you said, these strangers coming in again. Stop like, the buses. We've yeah. moved on from stop the exactly. buses. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the border, the border has become like these sort of like um, these same border policies now mm. we're sort of uh, it's been so ingrained in our in our heads we're seeing this same sort of discourse play out uh, where even the Home Affairs Minister gets in, involved even? come yeah. on <laughs> such a surprise <laughs> gets involved in an article that was yeah, that was uh, hiding sort of racist language yeah? such a tolerant man in normal times mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess that's a, like what we we should be using words like Nazi groups and uh, racist groups, um, right? Is that what you, that's what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Well, really, I think we've moved beyond. You know, Pauline Hanson used to be the far right. Pauline oh. Hanson now is shocked, shocked to find that her, a former you know, senator in her party, Fraser Anning, is like an outright total Nazi. Yeah. She's like one of the soft. Nazis next door, and he's like a Nazi Nazi, <laughs> and so, and so, one nation has long been used by the liberal national parties to take. Well, you know, where are the middle ground. One nation, other races, and now Fraser Anning and the Proud Boys are serving the same pers- purpose for one nation. Mm. Oh no, 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 we're 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 like the the, the nice racists, or we're actually not racist at all. <laughs> you want to see a real racist, you get you look at these people who fly swastika flags. That's what racism mm. looks like. So what does this what does this mean? What does this signify and how can we sort of move towards do like do we counter that discourse? Like how wh- what do we do? There's different ways of countering it and the reflexive response is just a fact check and fact checking is necessary I'm very glad there were people who went out to these country towns and 
asked and checked and said, does anybody have a photograph of these busloads of shoppers? And nobody did. That, that was a useful exercise. But if we spend too much time on fact-checking, then we're not getting at the core of the issue, which is just this, um, well, which is settled colonialism, really. And, um, and the, the foundations on which this society's political culture was built. Amy Maguire had a really interesting article in last weekend's Saturday paper about the response of Aboriginal community health services to the pandemic. And these services were onto it well before any state or the federal government. They could see the threat that it posed to a community that has a whole stack of pre-existing morbidities. And so they addressed it and they knew those communities well and they knew what needed to be done. And this is what sovereignty, I'm paraphrasing from the article, this is what sovereignty is about. It's allowing those communities to take those own decisions and make their own assessments. It was horrifying the toll that the pandemic could have taken and, and still might take, we're not out of the woods yet, upon those communities. But reading about that response, I have to say, is um, one of the more encouraging pandemic reads that you'll come across. <laughs> I guess also this is creating um, new sort of spaces for um, rethinking or reimagining uh, what societies could look like in the settler colonial context. As in, as in, I guess, sorry, what I meant by that, just coming off the back of, of the article uh, from which you were quoting, um, sort of, so Aboriginal communities have been facing this sort of stuff since the start of white invasion into this country. Um, so, I guess, uh, oh, I suppose, could we, could we expand on that? Um, so, we talked about race. Uh, we talked about, uh, yeah, race in race. Race in race, race in racist sort of settler colonial context such as Australia, um, uh, you know, or so called. Uh, can we talk a bit, a bit about that um, and sort of these uh, opportunities for uh, broader solidarity network uh, formations in this time? Well, again, well before the pandemic, there were some encouraging signs that. That, that particularly but not only second and third generation mi migrants of, racial, of various racialized communities were at least beginning the work of building solidarity with indigenous communities and understanding, understanding that they were living on stolen land and beginning to work through the fact that just because you were dispossessed from your own country of origin and have yourself been a victim of imperialism doesn't mean that you're not also beneficiaries of colonialism once you are settled on Aboriginal land. Which I know it's, it's difficult when you're 
a victim of racism yourself to also acknowledge that you are inevitably a beneficiary of settled colonialism. Not because you turned up and just stole you know, the, the property of Aboriginal people. You didn't mug anybody on the street. You're not a horrible person because of that. It's structural. And, um, but just because you didn't, on one level, do anything wrong, you didn't choose to be a beneficiary doesn't reduce the responsibility that we hold, that we all hold, to go about dismantling that structure. Um, and was there anything else that you wanted to add uh, before we wrap up? Not really, basically. Decolonize now! <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and thank you for having me. <laughs> cool. That was Dr. Shakira Hussein, who specialises in Islamophobia, speaking to us a little bit about sort of the racial dynamics of COVID-19. To find out more, to follow a bit more of her work, you can follow her on Twitter, which is at Shakira Hussein. Shakira spelled S-H-A-K-I-R-A. Hussein spelled H-U-S-S-E-I-N. Six years I've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, helping, giving us a chance to do this it's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now hopefully it goes, it keeps going you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. Next, I speak with Raj Patel, a member of the United Workers' Union, about the Australian University's Support Your Cleaners petition and the effects that COVID-19 has had on contract workers associated with Victorian universities. 
So I'm speaking with Raj, who's a member of the United Workers Union, about the university's Support Your Cleaners petition and basically support for uh, people working as cleaners at universities in Victoria. So Raj, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and let listeners know a bit about your involvement with the union and about your own circumstances? Yep. Hi, uh, my name is Raj Patel and I'm working in cleaning industry for different university for couple of countries, uh, companies from like last more than more, uh, four years. And yeah, as a cleaner, I had till today, I had a good experience with working with this, but certain in this pandemic, uh, university suddenly go for cut down of contracts and so company can't help us. But what is our problem is we are not eligible for any kind of help. First of thing, as uh, international student currently looking for some kind of help as international border are closed. Secondly, in my workplace, there is more than 250 cleaners. Out of that 250, maybe 70, 80% are international students. They are working for university from more than two, three years. Now they lose sudden uh, job, like before one and a half week, we came to know that university called for a meeting and told us that, that all, all of the cleaners are going for standout. So maybe from that 80% of international students, mostly 90% lose their job. So they are on standout mode currently. And now they are not, some have annual leave, some don't, some are casual, some are maybe facing different financial issues because of that big back country problem as well, because it is international worldwide pandemic. So they are not able to get any kind of help from their back home as well as our prime minister told, get, use your warranty money, but they are not able to get that money. Second thing, they are giving their like blood to this country from last four or five years by working in labor industry in farm picking and everywhere where no one is happy to work but these people are working now no one is there to help them they are not getting any kind of help ha, they are giving some help but it's once of a once of help and i don't know whether many of them will get or not and it's up to criteria that haven't yet decided so now, what is problem of my colleague by I talk couple of my colleagues, they don't have rent. They don't have money for grocery. They don't have money for paying bills and all that. Uh, now, where they should go, they don't know. They want to actually return to their country as well, but there is no international flights. Now, where they can go, they don't know. They don't have money for even go outside and get some medicine as well. The, just normal medicine. I'm talking about just Panadol. They don't have that money as well. Now they are facing even, they are not, they don't have any kind of money for essential as well. Now where they should go, they don't know. So by the union, we are getting like we are, they are coming to uni from many years. Currently after this situation, they are coming at, like at regular interval and they are trying to fight for international students, especially in worker industries. From that, yeah. union are happy and they tried very well. And because of that, students are getting once of help. 
international students, specifically from their universities and uh, maybe from some NGOs. NGOs are different story. They are helping. It's their like. Luckily, we got many like that. But ha, huh, hmm. from university they are helping, but still they are registering people by the camping from uh, unions. University started to help international student, but still they didn't get anything in their account. So it's just myth kind of thing that we will get, we will get. But when currently they don't have money, what will if I will back to work and then they will pay. In back date as well, but what I should do? Currently, I need money. I don't have. What I should do? Yeah, now? nothing. It's really concerning um, that the universities have decided to pull back on cleaning contracts um, without providing any support around extending job security to people or even um, payment security to people. Because I know, as you mentioned, the Victorian government is providing a one-off payment, but a one-off payment isn't going to be enough to support you to pay the bills, to pay your rent um, for however long the pandemic goes. Sure, it's $1,100. Do you think so? It will long last more than one year if you are freezing your rent and all the thing according to that packages. It will not long last more than one or one and a half month if you just use that money for only your grocery and basic things. Ha, huh, it's once off and still there is, they are just doing registration. How long it will take? It's not sure. They didn't, and even for standout, they didn't give us any kind of deadline. Like from this day, you will be back. There is no sure yeah. time, whether it will be six weeks, maybe six months, maybe two months, maybe tomorrow. When they will call us, yeah. we don't know. So we are unsure about our job that when we will back to work and now the problem is we don't have any kind of help. Our union are supporting like most of the unions currently United Voice is also supporting. They are trying to get people on the board and uh, try to sign petitions and sending it to government and they are following that procedure that government will or university will help us in financial aid on the terms of financial aid. But yeah, of course, for that, people have to come together as well to back up union as well. Because if there is 200, better. If there is 2,000, it is more better. And if more people will give more energy to union to fight against government and this cut down. Now, like 1st of May was my last day on job. Okay. Mm. On first from 1st of May, I was on send out. I got later. Before one and a half, like seven, eight day before that, I will, the, the first May is the last day because university is going to cut down contract and you have to go for stand down. Now company can't do anything. They try to keep us on job till they can. But after you mm-hmm. cut down the contract and they all send us on the uh, stand out. Now you needn't tell company as well that what is the date of returning. So each international student are in worry now that where I will get my job back or I will go to work again till that whether I have annual leave or not. And if I have, if I'm using that thing currently and if I want to actually travel because of some emergency, what I should do then after this Mm -hmm. pandemic, if I'm telling about in after December, 
I want to go my back country for one month, but I, I use my all leave. What I should do then? So they should give us enough notice. Actually, you needed nothing to keep the cleaner on job. They did nothing. They just play around that they give work, work. First, they try to reduce hour, then they just cut down contract. All international students, whoever is currently in Australia, they are paying same fees. They didn't get any kind of benefit from fees as well. So what is their problem to cut the contract? What the, that motto, we don't know. What is, what is that perception actually? Because where they are losing money, we don't know. Yeah, and as you've mentioned as well, um, this is especially concerning for people that are on visas that depend on them working. So like on a 485 visa, which is a temporary graduate visa, um, could you tell us a little bit about that visa huh. and how? how not being able to work might affect people's visa status? Okay, huh. I, I want to actually give some light on that. 485 visa and some work visa as well like work holiday visa and all that kind of people whoever is working in on that uh, in this country on that visa they are not eligible of any kind of government support not they are not international students so they are not getting this 1100 dollar as well it's once mm-hmm. of payment but it is for student visa not for these people mm-hmm. they don't have any kind of help means if they are Stand out means they are getting nothing. There is no jobs available in market as well because of current situation. No help, nothing. And they are, they, they just need cleaning till like one or two year, three year, whatever. Now they are stand out. They are just approaching union to fight against this signing petition and all that. But it's actually a real voice that they need help. They are getting nothing. Yeah. And uh, it's actually too sad that universities of this big Victorian university gave each and every university, if you go Monash, Melbourne, Uni, Victoria, whatever, they just give like around eight to 10 day of notice to each and every cleaner. In 10 day, you can't manage your finance. It's, they're too educated people. They should understand that in 10 days, no one can arrange nothing in this condition. Before we finish up, um, what can listeners um, to our program do to support people who have been stood down because of COVID-19 cuts to cleaning contracts at universities? Okay. I want people to sign this kind of petition as much as they can. Like, don't feel that you will face something, like you will part of some co-sequences because of this. No, it's your right. You have to support you have to raise your voice for yourself because you are not getting anything. Second thing, if you think it's unfair decision to you, you should support this kind of petitions. Uh, third thing, unions are for us, not for them. They are not getting anything. Most of the union members are citizens and PR. They are uh, eligible for their job keeper and job seeker payment. They are fighting for us. Now, what you are facing for that thing, you have to raise your voice, support uh, the union and ask actually why union ask university, why you cut down the program, uh, this budget for cleaning contracts. I just Uh want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Thank you. We just listened to a conversation that I had with Raj Patel, who's a member of the United Workers Union, about the Australian University's Support Your Cleaners petition.
And that's all we have time for on the show this morning. Thanks so much for tuning into Thursday Morning Breakfast. So first up, um, you heard a conversation that I had with Anna Carlson about how surveillance operates in so-called Australia and also how it's operating amidst COVID-19. Um, and then you heard a conversation that Max had with Sam Elkin, um, and that was about the uh, Victoria's only free legal service, um, the LGBTI community hosting the first ever virtual Change Your ID this Monday, 18th of May. And then we heard uh, a few poems by Nika Lehman. Then uh, you would have heard a conversation that uh, Shahrazad had with Dr. Shakira Hussein, and that followed on from that conversation last week, where Shakira was speaking about the intersection of race, Islamophobia, and COVID-19. Um, and this week, she dipped into a little bit of the dynamics of race, class, and the far right within the settler colony. And then, lastly, um, we just heard a conversation then where Priya was speaking with Raj Patel, um, a former university cleaner who was stood down during COVID-19 and member of the United Workers' Union about the Australian University's Support Your Cleaners petition. Huge show, and um, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Tune in again next week, um, 8.55 a.m. or 3cr.org.au slash streaming to listen to us from 7 to 8.30 a.m. next Thursday. And now to Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.